It's Amateur Hour. I'm here with Amateur Hour. Welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. I'm Kaka Face. I'm a semi-aquatic egg-laying mammal of action. I'm Amateur Hour. You ate the whole wheel of cheese? Welcome, Brian. Who are you? Why are you here? Uh, yes, I'm Brian. I don't know why I'm here, actually. Um, but we roll with it. And you brought me on on like the Amateur Hour show. So there's no music. There's no Caleb. There's no Caleb. Although that might be for the best. This truly is the Amateur Hour show. Is this the first one that Caleb hasn't been on? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Also, uh, to add to the Amateur Hour uhness of this my my audacity is not loading at all mike's also got gluten-free crispy something baked crap that he's so when you hear the in the background i'm gonna go get my snacks in a second here oh my goodness this is less this is an amateur hour it's like it's 11 40 it's lunch hour this is not amateur hour this is can barely This is going to be the unaired podcast. Ugh. I'm going to put this on my CV and then they're going to go to try to find it. And they'll be like, I'd, I couldn't find it. It's not real. I don't ever see that one. That's weird. That's crazy. All right. Well, um, I have a did you know. I'm just finishing my hummus. Well, we're still doing introduction stuff. See, Rachel, I don't know if you've been on the podcast, but we talk about our lives for a little bit. And then we do a did you know. We have been on the air for three minutes and Caleb's going to yell at us if we stick to three minutes. I was just trying to be efficient. So, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself other than uh, what you've told us so far. Yeah, I don't even remember what I told you. Um, let's see. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I think Matt's crying. Have you been Asian your whole life? Um, <laughs> hey, is Matt frozen? Okay. <laughs> you can't just say that. You have to say our friend Andre says he's been black his whole life. So, Brian, have you been Asian your whole life? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So, good question, actually, because I don't know, because for the good part of the first five years, it was in preschool, and a kid came up to me and said, why do I look different? And so then I proceeded to go home to my parents, who are white, because I'm adopted, and I asked them, "Why do I look different from you? And that was when they had to delicately communicate that uh, I was adopted and I was Asian. I was a little, I just, I didn't catch on very quickly. Um, I guess I didn't notice the difference because my sister's adopted an Asian and my parents are white. And that didn't really. The genetics thing hadn't really kicked in at that point. Yeah, I didn't really catch on to that. So, so maybe the first five years of my life, I wasn't Asian. It's, it's quite possible. Granted, I was born in Asia, so. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, we know that just because you're born in Asian, you're not actually Asian. This is true. Like just because, just because you're born in America, you could be black. Yeah. I'm not American now. <laughs> oh, is that not the? Is that not how it works? That's just that's the narrative that I'm hearing from certain parts of the media. That that's just how that works. So, uh, podcast listeners, that was what we call a satirical joke to prove a point. Brian, another important uh, part of you is your love of our favorite ice cream, which is strawberry ice cream. Strawberry ice cream, it's so good. It's the best. Thank you. Amateur and mediocre hour. 
Hey. Mediocre hour now? Don't even. Pastor Becky's really far away from the mic, but mediocre hour was great. I'd like to apologize to the, um, because we're probably, you're going to lose like what? The four out of like 10 viewers of the podcast. So listeners, not viewers. A few us in our, in your hearts. Yeah. I'll just, I'll, let me verbally describe everyone. Uh, Brian is Asian with glasses. Uh, Matt looks like uh, Santa grew up in the wrong side of the train tracks. Uh, Pastor Becky looks like Bray, the girl from Brave, Merida, if she was blonde. And I am just a long-haired, trying, long-haired individual trying to grow a beard and it's not working. That is a pretty accurate description of me. I appreciate that. I, that is, that is. You do, the moment he said that, I said, I had the question whether or not you had red or blonde hair. I was like, wait. Well, I have had red hair in the past, actually. I have dyed my hair red. And because my sister has red hair and we are similarly complexioned, it looks natural for me. I've almost gone blonde multiple times. I don't think you should. No, no. You've gone blonde multiple times. Oh, you meant hair. All right. Insert did you know music here. Did you know? (laughs) You sent me something I need to subscribe to. Just block, just add, you got to pause your ad blocker. Polar bear and grizzly bear hybrids known as pizzly bears could become more common because of the climate crisis. All right, this is old news. Did you guys not hear about this? No. They're growler bears. I've never heard them called pizzly bears. Yeah, growler is the more common one. I don't know. Pizzly is. Uh, It's if a male polar bear has makes a child with a female grizzly bear it's a growler bear if a male grizzly bear makes a baby with a female polar bear it's a pizzly bear hello podcast listeners this is caleb obviously i wasn't there at the recording of this podcast but i need to pop in here to make a real quick correction it is a growler bear if the sire is a grizzly bear and it is a pizzly bear if the sire is a polar bear So basically, Mike was wrong. Exactly the opposite of what he said. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Okay, so this says, Pizzly bears, sometimes called growler bears, are are bear hybrid that could become more common in the Arctic as a result of the climate crisis. The pizzly bear is a result of polar bears and grizzly bears breeding. There is one female getting around up there. What? A 2017 study published in the journal Arctic documented eight pizzlies who were the offspring or descendants of one female polar bear. And she had two different baby daddies. I think maybe she just had some higher standards. Wait, whoa. You're telling me that grizzlies are better than polar bears? You need to leave. Why would you ever think a grizzly bear is better than a polar bear? Polar bears are the superior bears. I just think the fact that they're ever called a pizzly bear is kind of the best thing ever. Yeah, I think that the part of the problem is they're not genetically different that different so they can mate i think they should be called growler bears that's why dogs and wolves can mate i mean i would take offense if i identified as a growler bear but you called me a pizzly bear i'm just saying uh the question that this article does not raise or answer and that mike you might be able to are the growlers able to reproduce as far as i've heard it looks like yes because you know ligers and tions can reproduce. Yeah, but uh, but mules can't, which I, I find very interesting. Which is so crazy. Yeah, if you double up a liger, they get even bigger. Which is always... It's crazy to me that ligers are so big. 
A second generation Liger is terrifying. Yeah, uh, they're freaking monsters. Oh, I've never seen a Liger. You've never seen a Liger? Dude. They're terrifying. Whoa. It's huge. So hold on. The Liger has a male lion as its father and the female Liger as its mother. The first birth of the Ligers was a breakthrough about the female Liger's fertility and sterility. Yeah, because I don't think there are that many Ligers that exist, like just generally. That's a really big, pretty kitty. I wonder how long they did exist, though, because we know that the lion's territory has been greatly diminished. I wonder if they were natural, like if true over near Iran. Ooh, sorry. If over near Iran, there was a, a, a big mix there. There just might have been. Hercules, the largest non-obese liger, <laughs> is recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest living cat on Earth, weighing 418 pounds. Why can't you include obese ligers in the largest liger category? That's what I want to know. Because everyone knows obese obesity disqualifies you from personhood. Yeah, the 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 records for the largest lion and tiger in in captivity are under one thousand pounds. How is that comparing anything? I don't know. Okay, can growler bears reproduce? Is that like a Siri question? Can growler bears? <laughs> <laughs> that is two different questions. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if mules can, so... I'm sure they can. Are those mutually exclusive or no? I'm I'm pretty sure mules can still kind of get it on. I just don't know if they fire anything. Scientists confirmed last week that a bear shot by an hunter in the Northwest Territories is a second-generation grizzly polar bear hybrid, a pizzly or growler bear, and it was fertile. So it says it's because they have more recent common ancestry. That makes sense. So on Reddit... Oh, no. Intact female mules... Go into heat and will be receptive to males when in the right part of their cycle. Nice. Now you know. Get it, girl. Um, hold on. What are we holding on to? I don't know, but I'm holding on. I'm holding on. No, no, stop it. They're so big, man. That's what she said. First off. So this video is about the the, the rarest second generation big cat hybrids. The Lidigon. The what? Is a rare second generation hybrid from a female tigon, a hybrid between a male tiger and a female lion and a male lion. You 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 missed a T there. You missed a T there. And then there's a Tittygon. There's a Lidigon and a Tittygon. And now it's time to move to our new segment, our middle segment. All right. What are we doing now? Oh, what's our news story? No, we're in the middle section. The middle section is the... Have you listened to one of these podcasts before, Rebecca? <laughs> Sorry, Nate just texted me because he's super mad because the tennis courts are closed and he was supposed to play tennis today and he's really grumpy. He's, I think he tried to say he's pissed, but it says I'm pizzas. You know, your middle-aged, your middle-aged husband sure does have some middle-aged problems. What a middle-class white person problem. <laughs> Honey, the tennis courts are closed. You guys, he's going to hear this and then be like, hold on. Now what will I do with my sweater? I just, I just restrung my racket. I just warmed up my forearms and everything for nothing. I got a fresh can of tennis balls. You know, that's a great experience though. So this month is Asian American Pacific Islander month. And I thought we already did this podcast. We did, but I think we should do it again. Oh, okay. I'm second string. No, we did the please stop 
hurting people, Asian people podcast. That's true. This can be the, the, the helping and loving Asian people podcast. Which are two different things. I thought me and Brian were going to fight about Lego. Oh, are you guys going to fight about Lego? We can fight about, we can, we can do that and love Asian people. It's almost like we could do both. No, it's one or the other. Brian, would you mind, we can, we can fight about Lego too, but would you mind maybe, maybe you could just share a little bit about your experience, experiences. My experiences? Is this story time with Brian? A new segment of the show. Because this is something, I mean, you know, we should talk about it. So you brought me on. I like Regularly, Matt. Regularly. Not just once. Why are you mad at me? Listen, race, as Esau Macaulay told me, racism is the sin that we just fix. I'm still wondering if racism even is a real thing. So Right. Like, you, you know, we preach uh, racism, the thing we preach on once, and then it's over. We fixed everything. Yay. Yeah. We're done. Yeah, we fixed racism like 100 years ago, I think. Yeah. Civil rights movement, didn't that fix it all? Yeah. So we can move on now. So, Brian, we, we've had previously people on the show. We had mm-hmm. uh, On and Brad, both of whom um, of our Asian descent. And I don't want to get their descent wrong, so I'm not going to try because I don't remember everyone. Because they're Americans. On is a first-generation Vietnamese immigrant. That's where they're from. Okay. And Brad is a Japanese American. Uh, one of his parents is Japanese. One of them was Caucasian. But they are American. Just like we want to be clear on this because that's how this works. I have a card that says I'm American. So. Oh, you do? I Well, and then Brian's Korean. So we're just really making the rounds on the different representations of the country. That's real. But Brian, both of them were on being an immigrant and Brad, uh, his parents were here. You have an, an uh, a different experience in, yeah. in the Asian culture, which is that you were adopted and that was that's part of your story. So do you ever feel like you identify with your ethnicity less because of the adoption? Yeah. I, so the challenge for me growing up was always, I was obviously, I'm obviously not white. And I growing up in a predominantly white area of New Jersey, I was, I didn't fit in because I, I'm perceived Asian, 100%. You know, ancestry tells me 100% Asian East. So thank you, Ancestry, for telling me something I couldn't find out in the mirror. But then whenever I would meet people who were part of the AAPI community, they would, through you know questions as such, they would find out I'm Korean. And then they would begin to ask me various things about uh, Korean culture and my heritage and I'm, I'm clueless uh, to the point where I joke around and people ask me, uh, I mean, I get the old question, where are you from? And so I just answer facetiously and say, well, um, 50% Greek. And then I'm a mix from my mom's side, uh, Native American, Irish, and Italian. And so I've always answered it. But there's truth there to that too, because I can relate to that more than I can a lot of times my Korean background, my, my heritage and culture. And so it was like, I'm not Asian enough to fit in with the within the AAPI community and relate to them. At the same time, I'm too Asian to fit in with white culture. Um, and so it's like, at times I feel homeless uh, culturally. And it's probably one of those things where, you know, I've, I've, want, I've, I've been, you know, working on trying to learn my culture more. And, but it's, it's just weird. It's weird because I'm kind of in this middle ground trying to find a place where I can fit in. And a lot of times I just don't feel like I fit in. 
my family's all white. And so a lot of times, uh, even within my own family, who I've known nothing but love, there have been times where my sister, who's also Korean and adopted, similar situation, we will stand next to each other at things. And it'll be like, we've had moments where we were at family functions at like in public settings, and my sister and I will be standing next to each other. And somebody who's from our extended family doesn't know us, and they will assume that we are employees of the venue and such. And it's just always like that. Nice. Are you, is she older than you or are you older? Uh, she's older than me. Um, so she's four years older than me, but we are not blood related. So just both adopted, uh, different seasons, but uh, similar. Were you adopted from like the same, through the same company, from the same facility? I don't know how that works in different, like th- there's so many different ways. Yeah. So for us, there was a uh, agents, adoption agency that my parents went through. Uh, they had had friends. My parents had infertility challenges and they hit a breaking point with that and just said, we're done. Like this was too painful for us. And so they had friends um, in their church who had adopted through this agency. And so they had decided they, they wanted kids. And so they went through that, this agency to uh, adopt us. And so uh, they adopted my sister. True story. There's actually, they adopted somebody before me. There was one between, can I tell the story? Yeah. That's up to you. My sister's adopted in 84. I'm adopted in 88. And that's all I've ever known. And when we were, when I was in college, my freshman year of college, I was home on break and I was going through a filing cabinet that my dad has on all of our stuff for my sister and I, and I needed a document or something. So I'm going through and my sister's first and all of her paperwork. And then I'm second because she's the oldest. And so I'm getting to the end of my sister and between right before I get to my folder that says, Brian, I see this small, really thin folder that says Michael. And I'm like, what the crap is this? So I pull this folder out and there's a picture in eight of this baby boy who was adopted in 1986 between my sister and I, because my sister was adopted in 84, I was 88. And in 1986, it's really sad though. I mean, like we, you know, we laugh about it, but uh, in 1986, my parents adopted a baby boy and uh, going through, it's got all of his medical records and all this stuff, all the adoption stuff. And my parents had him at the home. My sister was only two, so she doesn't remember him and everything seemed fine. And after a couple of months, my parents noticed something was wrong. And like he was eating and sleeping and such, but he wasn't responding to everybody. So they took him to the hospital or a doctor or a hospital, something like that. And they did some tests and they realized that he only had part of his brain. Oh my gosh. Like the rest of his brain wasn't there. So all he, like he had no developmental or cognitive ability. All he could do was survive and eat and like, just like those eating sleep stuff. Um, and so they, uh, they took him back. Um, and then two years later, they adopted me. And I was like, so I asked my dad, I was like, dad, if he was okay, would you have adopted me? And he just looked at me and said, nope. I was like crushed. <laughs> the, the quaintness. So it just like, absolutely not. We said two and we meant it. Yeah. They said two. They were only so. Wait. So what, I mean, I guess this begs the question of what happened to Michael. They, the adoption agency took him back. And I mean, the reality is that he probably didn't live much longer. Uh, just with yeah, what what he did, what um, whatever health condition he had, uh, he was the survival rate was not going to be long. Man, oh my gosh, Matt! Hey, Caleb, don't put that in the podcast. Gosh, you're a terrible human. Wow. No, that's crazy though. I mean, obviously, it's it's not a test that you would normally perform on a baby, like especially one that seems fine. Right. You know, everything appeared fine in the beginning. 
So uh, I think it was, I mean, I know it was painful. It's something we don't talk about with my parents, but uh, it was yeah. just one of those shocking things that I'm eight, 19, 20 years old and I find out. And the thing was my sister had no memory, but she had only found out the year before I did. So it was one of those things where we're like both just like yeah, brain explosion moment. But yeah, that's, that is crazy that you, no one, no one knew about it. So uh, has there been anything, obviously, you know, you, there are parts of that you wouldn't give up. Um, has there been anything where you just get frustrated at times or do you, do you wonder what life would have been like otherwise? Do you have any idea? If not, if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. I'm just, no, no, no. I'm, I'm very, I mean, I'm very, I've only known my adoptive parents as mom and dad. Yeah. Um, and so that's a testament to the home they've created for us. I've known, I've never known, uh, I've never felt unwanted. I never felt like I wasn't their son. And I think the same, my sister would say the same thing. One of the things like I have always been curious about wanting to find out like who my birth parents were. Uh, but unfortunately, when I looked up the records, my mom was probably 16 or 17 years old. There's no proof of that, but it just, it documents young, uh, very young teen. It documents teenage. A teenage woman came to a birthing clinic, gave birth, and then uh, and then left me there, and she left. So there is no record anywhere of my of my birth mother, and there was and so and there was no idea of who my birth father was either, because uh, he wasn't in the picture when she came to the birthing clinic. So I do wonder at times, but at the same point, I'm thankful for where I'm at. And uh, I've had a a blessed life and uh, in some ways, most certainly privileged. And uh, so I can't imagine that I would have the opportunities and be in the position I am now in life had it not been. And so I always say that my birth mother did the best thing she could have done for me, which is give me up for adoption. But it's tough because I used to think that like I have a Korean name. And I'll leave that not on here for right now. Um, but I always thought that that was like the name my birth mother gave me. And then when I found these adoption papers and my like the and it, all the information, the uh, woman at the orphanage named me. So I think that was that was a, a a a punch to the gut. Is that I always felt like maybe I could use my name to connect me with my birth mom one day to find someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then to find out that my name is given to me by, an, by a worker at the orphanage was very. I think that kind of like that was a tough thing to process because it was like this was my my name was like the one connection I I like the one glimmer of hope I had to like find out who it was. And but I do wonder. I wonder do I have siblings? I wonder whether my mom, my dad are alive. I wonder if my dad even knows. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy because those are not just the questions that that you have as somebody who was adopted from an Asian, uh, an Asian country, but like, that's, that's a common adoptee question, right? I think that that hits, there's a lot of humanity in that question. Yeah. Some adoptees are able to find and are able to, and, and some are, you know, and so my situation is just not, it's not there, but, uh, which was tough, but at the same point, my parents, I don't, I don't need that answer. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it sounds like you had a great a great home in that way. Yeah, and that, I, that's a testament to my mom and dad. And they were, you know, far from perfect, but, you know. So uh, one last question, uh, I think maybe, who knows, we'll see. Have you, uh, so you know where the, the orphanage is. Have you th- ever considered going and visiting that and or anything along those lines? Oh, yeah. So uh, 
in the next in the next few years, the 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 plan is to go to South Korea and to so I know I know the the orphanage and and everything, and I have information on the workers and all that. So there are things that we that I can do to just at least get to the as far as far along as I can in the process, like to the beginning. Like there's yeah, I'm not gonna get all the answers, but so that is the plan is uh, and that's the desire I've always had is to go and visit and learn and experience my my heritage. And that's exciting uh, to be able to do that. And so uh, hopefully in the next few years, uh, my my wife, you know, she'll be able to join me on that too. Because uh, that's something that like we both want to uh, experience together. And so just don't go in the winter. Boy. Winters in South Korea are brutal. They can be. They're pretty, they're pretty far north. You, you don't think about it. But uh, the Korean Peninsula is quite far north. The summers are hot and humid. That's true. It is actually. But the winters are. Brian, I hope I, none of that was too personal. I was trying to to hit the good spots and. No, I wouldn't answer if it's too personal. Good. I I appreciate that. Please don't use this on the podcast, Caleb. Listen, every time I say that he puts it in, that's not true. Choose your own podcast, a AAPI edition. <laughs> Caleb's actually, if we absolutely say don't put this in, he's usually pretty good about taking it out. No, I don't have anything so far I regret saying. I regret coming on the podcast, though. That's fair. We usually do as well. Yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just the questions and then silence. We don't have any We don't have any AAPI friends, so we uh, made one up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Go, go find someone from the AAPI community and just ask them the questions we do. Here we go. Yeah. All right. I got to go. Um, I'll keep you guys posted. All right. Well, oh, why, why, uh, why Southeastern and not Valley Forge? Uh, yeah. So this is gonna sound like, cause I grew up in Jersey. And so I went to like a college visit at Valley Forge and I think it was like 14 years old. And of course it was like the first time I've ever been on a college campus. And I was like, this is so cool. This is so awesome. Blah, blah. And then my youth pastor went to Southeastern. And so he's like, you should check out Southeastern. And then I went to visit Southeastern and I was like, why would I ever go to Valley Forge? It's just camp campus comparison, not only campus comparison. All right. We're trying to stay diplomatic here. It's half the battle. The costs were very comparable between Southeastern and Valley Forge. Um, and the campus experience was just so, I mean, it's Florida and part of, I mean, that plays a huge part of it. When you're up, grow up in the Northeast, Florida is just very much so is always attractive. Um, and because the cost was com- you know, comparable to each other, comparable to each other, just it was a no brainer for me. And plus, I wanted to get away and to go to Valley Forge. I didn't feel like I, I could get away. Um, I was still local. And uh, that was but so it was a combination of that. And then also, like I said, my youth pastor went to Southeastern. So that played a part in me choosing Southeastern. But Evangel is like the best, isn't it? And no one wants to go to like uh, Evangel or Central Bible College because that was still a thing back then. That's right. Evangel's where liars go. Isn't it? Isn't Evangel the best? That's where all the good preachers come from, right? Brian, Brian, I have good news for you. You get to read the oh, whoosh, whoosh, tweet of the week. I'm like, when I was asked to come on, I was so excited that I had the opportunity to read the tweet of the week. Oh, and you should. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really excited about these tweets in a terrible way. Well, we'll start out with one. If we have time for the next one, 
We'll talk about the next one, but this one's pretty great. Twitter.com slash Eric Metaxas. All right. What do we got? Oh my gosh. When you're ready, Ryan, give, give us your best Metaxas read. These words are not mine. These are words from a Mr. at Eric Metaxas. And he says, if you wear a mask outdoors, you need to stop. Just think of it as a Nazi armband once you leave the store or restaurant. Does that help you get the idea that it's unhelpful? <laughs> uh, dear listener, uh, there are pictures <laughs> of uh, two Nazi sympathizers wearing armbands. Oh, I can't see them because they've been uh, they've been they've been blocked for me. You can't hit view. I did. Good. I don't think this is the same thing, Eric. I don't think this is I thought I thought he was talking. Listen, listen, dear listener. We I did not see the pictures when when our our friend Brian read this tweet. So I just thought he was talking about once again doing his Metaxas thing, talking about the <laughs> Germany and no no. These are modern Nazis. But he thinks modern that's Nazis. the same thing. Like, yeah. these are people alive today that he believes are the same as you wearing a mask outside. Yes. There are, they're actually wearing the Nazi, Nazi armband. I, I, my mouth feels dirty for reading that. I'm just... It should. It should. I am no longer excited that I read the tweet of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Your excitement has disappeared? I can't understand why. Look, you know what? Again, it wasn't so bad. Like, I was like, look, it's a little dumb. I don't like it when I thought he was thinking about World War II. But with the the pictures, the pictures make this one. Because he's not talking about those people. It looks like a dude who's getting a newspaper from a newspaper thing. He is equating people who wear masks outside as a modern Nazi. To people who literally hate people who don't look like them. Like, it, listen, if you want to, I don't, I don't generally wear a mask outside because I am not within six feet of people when I go outside. Right. I know. That's wild. It's crazy. But that, if you wanted to, go for it. I don't think, dear listener, that you're a freaking Nazi. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't see people wear, who wear their mask outside as immediately hating you. Because you look and you look completely different from them. You don't equate that. Not currently. The craziest thing, again, the audacity of this tweet coming from Metaxas, as someone who allegedly has done a lot of history into the World War II era, specifically on Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis. Every time he tweets about this kind of stuff, every time he tweets about this stuff, I feel like he less less and less he actually wrote that. I, I don't believe anymore that he wrote it. <laughs> like, Here, here's the challenge for me is that there are actually there were 45 people who retweeted it and there were 175 people who liked this tweet. And I just want to like, I can understand Eric Metaxas because we've come to know through the tweet of the week that Eric Metaxas is just he misses it. But what about the other 175 people who affirmed this tweet? I'm reading some of the comments. I can't read. I can't see the likes unless I log in, and I'm not going to log in. You can see who retweeted and quote tweeted it. 
one of my a good reply is to be perfectly frank i wear mine 24 7 and can't stop slash won't stop until mike sends me a notarized cease and desist letter and the picture is someone with a with a uh, photo of a uh, uh the my pillow guy bonhoeffer is rolling in his grave right now that might actually be the best one. I am aware that you literally wrote a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and yet I'm seeing a great deal of evidence that you don't actually understand what Nazism was or why it was bad. <laughs> I don't think you know what that word means. Someone commented, are you drunk? And then replied to their own comment, never mind, even if you were drunk, it's a completely silly thought and dangerous overall. Okay, so once again, listen, uh, listen, podcast listeners, we need to reset here. And in podcast people, when you're set, we, we need to point out a couple things. Number one, Eric Metaxas is a human. Number two, Eric Metaxas is loved by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Number three, neither one of those things doesn't mean that we can't face Paul when he says crazy things like this. Right. This is wild. Wild's an understatement. Yeah. I just don't even understand you guys. I think it's so funny. Like, and I, I was talking to my wife about this, about like the whole. Like I used to be the person who was always like, well, at least I'm not freaking Hitler or what, you know, like always that. And like kind of came to the realization that, you know, that's actually not the best way to communicate my thoughts to relate everything back to Hitler or Nazis because, you know, they were pretty horrible. It was a pretty horrible thing. And do we equate things to that is to equate things to the Holocaust and what the Nazis stand for. And so for someone who, who again, wrote, a, allegedly wrote a book a historical biography of a man who was a Christian leader who was, uh, you know, killed by the Nazis to equate wearing a flipping mask outside to wearing Nazi armbands in a po- in a modern context is absolutely disrespectful to the man that he allegedly cares so much about. He wrote a book on. It's wild. I haven't read the book. And now I want to read the book. Don't read the book. Just read Bonhoeffer. Like he has, he has books. Who's Bonhoeffer? You can read the cost of discipleship. You can read ethics. You can read life together. Like you can read Dietrich Bonhoeffer without having to go through Eric Metaxas. I know, but part of me just wants to get an idea and compare it to the Eric Metaxas of today. I 0% want to do that. I would be lying if I said I wouldn't not be interested in reading his biography and comparing it to Bonhoeffer's own writing and maybe another biography of Bonhoeffer. That might be a better a better way to do that. I'm just not going to pay for it though, so I'm not going to buy the book or put money. So like, <laughs> I feel I say I feel like that's a uh, audible credit and then return it as soon as you're done. <laughs> I don't think I get that far. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I do believe that if we go any further on this train, I will start cussing more. So we're going to go ahead and move on. I, I could send you the other tweet. Nope. You hold on to that one. I don't want to read anymore. I don't. Nope. I don't want to feel any dirtier. Then here we go. On to the next story. Caleb, insert music here. All right, so our, our last story, I think it did it, it dropped last week when we were recording, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it did. Yeah. Brian and I were here, but but yeah, I remember getting the the breaking news on my watch from New York Times that I went to go then read the story, and then it wouldn't let me read because I don't subscribe to the New York Times. That'll do it. So one 
one Josh Duggar of the Duggar clan has been in the news a couple times. times uh, once for allegedly, I don't know how I had to say allegedly, cause I don't know if it was ever proven uh, abusing his sisters. It, he molested his sisters, but I will say allegedly because I understand how suing people works. Uh, and then he also allegedly uh, was a part of Ashley Madison. That's not alleged. That is proven in an attempt to cheat on his wife. I think he did cheat on his wife. I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough to, to be factual on these, so I can only say what I have heard. His words, and you can only take them at what his words say, was he became unfaithful to his wife. So what that what, what that entails, we don't know. The latest thing is worse. Yeah. Because somehow this gets deeper. He did some bad things. And podcast audience, if you want to go look more into it, there will be a, a tweet from Rachel Denhollander. Uh, if you want to go down that road, I don't want to talk about it on the podcast no. specifically because I no. think that it's nope. Yeah. Okay. We all agree. Yeah. No, Fair. it's bad though. It's real bad. Like mm-hmm. think of the worst thing and it's probably worse than that. Yep. So a couple things that I think are of importance when discussing this and we, we pulled up the Rachel Denhollander uh, tweet thread. It'll be in the show notes just because I think that she has obviously a great uh, great's the wrong word. She has a perspective on this that the church needs to listen to. Yes. 100%. And so she talks about, I'd like to read two of these tweets just because I think they show the problem to a certain extent. Uh, Josh was able to view these images, even though he had a program like Covenant Eyes on his computer, because he downloaded special software that allowed him to bypass it. And his Covenant Eyes reports were going to his wife, a homeschooling mom of six with a seventh on the way. Busy and exhausted, she was also expected to babysit her husband's porn problem. Not only did he have software that allowed him to bypass the program, he had partitioned hard drives and browsers to access the dark web. This wasn't an accident. This was planned, premeditated, and probably going on for a long time. And that just, to me, that is, it's heavy. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that makes the rest of the story worse. Yeah. Like this wasn't something that he was like, Ooh, I got to figure out a way to get around this. No, he like had multiple ways to get around the, the reporting that the guardrails that he had put in place. So our friend, pastor Becky preached a sermon about putting guardrails in place. And, um, I watched something the other day on Facebook from, uh, Craig Rochelle about all the guardrails he has in place, uh, for himself. And I think that guardrails can be important. But it's not a guardrail if you take a, a blowtorch to it and cut it down the minute you put it up. Mm-hmm. Like that defeats the purpose. Well, and I mean, I mean, reading that tweet, the the amount of, I mean, I, I don't know if you if you guys ever like partitioned hard drives or whatever, but like the amount of work it actually takes to like do the math to partition hard drives or whatever, like it, it's not just like a you can accidentally partition a hard drive. Like you actually have to like figure out how to do it. And I don't have a partition. I don't have a partition hard drive for illegal sketchy stuff. It's so I can run Windows on my Mac. I mean, everything about it was intentional. I'm sure there's a YouTube video. Well, yeah, <laughs> but everything was like intentionally set up and established to go out of your way to engage in this stuff. Like this wasn't one of those things that it took place by accident or something. Like this is premeditated. Doesn't even begin to describe it. Mm-hmm. Which to me, the guardrails almost come off as a facade to appease people. Yeah. So I can carry out like, hey, I'll establish these guardrails that I know 
how to bypass. So that way I have the appearance of accountability and safety and all that. But in the meantime, this is just setting it up so I can do what I want to do. All right. So I want to get to the next part, which I think is actually the the part that we can maybe, uh, the whole thing is horrible. And th- this is a, a very important part of it, but I think this is where we can get to a part that we can touch on a little bit more. And I don't know. Um, so Josh was in custody. He was arrested. So uh, his father, Josh's father began calling people in the church, asking him to be Josh's custodian until trial. So he could be released on bail. He found a man willing to take him in, except that man's wife teaches piano lessons to children. She was not comfortable with having Josh in her home all day because she would be alone with him while her husband's at work. That didn't matter to the husband. She has to find a new place to teach all those children because her husband wants Josh to live with them. Every single family who takes piano from her, the wife herself, has to uproot their routine because Josh. Everyone is expected to bear the cost except Josh. Those are Rachel's words. Now, the wife's very own reasonable fears about being alone all day with a man who did the things that Josh did didn't matter to the husband either. The FBI agent recommended that Josh be kept in custody, especially since the wife was afraid to have him in the home. Um, but when she, this is it. But when she was called to the witness stand and after she was in agreement with having, having Josh live with him, she responded that, quote, her husband had made the decision and she was here to support him, end quote. Because under that theology, he has the authority and her job is to submit. When we talk about the fact that complementarianism, and especially the hardline hierarchical complementarianism, creates problems, this is where those are. In no way, shape, form, or fashion should the man have the final say here? Because if nothing else, he's not looking out for his wife's well-being. No, absolutely not. Well, and it's just one of those things where it's like, like all, I don't know, logic is thrown out the window. Why? Like, it's not like, at this point, I believe, it's not like it's still, he allegedly is doing this. Like if the FBI is involved, it's it's pretty positive. Technically, technically, it's still allegedly, but the uh, the AUSA and the FBI have like a ninety percent conviction rate for a reason, right? So, like, yeah, I I don't understand the the missing logic of the public knowledge of what he's done, coupled with what your wife's job is coupled with linking yourself to this individual at this moment in this way. Like, I just, I don't understand. <laughs> I also think it's just, it, it's something kind of bigger too, just in our church of like the, Oh, like he didn't mean it or it was just, you know, he, you know, whatever that line of excuse normally, normally goes, you know, Oh, he, he's a victim too. And it's like, well, he's a victim of sin and of, you know, the, the, uh, powers, authorities and, um, whatever Paul talks about that, you know, seek to be against us, but like he did a, he did a bad thing. And like, yeah, I, why, why would you not think about how that's going to affect your household and your family to invite that in? Even if, you want to look on 
you know, the positive and, and be Christ's love. Like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's loving to bring that situation into, into your household when your wife teaches children piano. <laughs> I think, you know, reading it again and the fact that the wife had the opportunity to go on the, on the witness stand. And when asked, I mean, her response was uh, her husband made that decision and she was there to support him, which tells me that the church environment that she has been a part of has emphasized that this is her responsibility to always submit to her husband to the point of, in this situation, as grotesque and as vile as it is, and I mean, it's so bad. And against her own desires and wishes and her own that she still is, you know, supporting her husband. Yeah. At that point, maybe we don't support her husband anymore. You know, maybe we make a better call there. And I don't put that on her. I put that on the environment and the culture that has, you know, has, has forced that on her. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where like, it's a progress, it's a progression, but like that kind of, um, hardline submission does lead to um, an increase in like spousal abuse or spousal rape when it's not seen as that because it's just it's it's the explicit implicit taught of it's just the wife's job to submit to whatever it is and like in in really extreme complementarianism this hierarchical complementarianism it kind of just takes away personhood from the woman in which they exist to serve and support the husband and and nothing more. And that's what like really troubles me. Yeah. To keep going in the thread. So Josh was released and not just released, but released with visitation rights to his own children, which is bull crap, which is really problematic in this situation. Anna, his wife, is required to supervise the visits, and she will. Next tweet. She can't protect her children from their father or push him out of the home because it would be unsubmissive and God hates divorce. And I think, so this is something I, I talked to somebody about today and we'll, or yesterday, last night, and we'll see how this goes. But this idea of God hating divorce, it's thrown around a lot. But why does he hate divorce? I mean, it seems like he hates divorce because especially in that culture, when the woman would no longer be cared for, right? She's thrown out with no prospects. Mm-hmm. How is this God's will? And yet divorce isn't because here she is thrown out and her views don't matter. Like this is just as painful as divorce is. Yeah. So if anything, God hates this. And if she were to divorce, divorce him and move on, that doesn't seem like something God would be opposed to. It, it's it's looking at the, the the text and saying, oh, it has to be read literally. And anything not God hates divorce is wrong. But it's like, no, God hates this. Yeah. And I would I would venture a guess that God hates this more than he hates divorce. I would I would agree with that. Uh, well, it's also why I mean, why do people tend to get divorced like needs are not being met like abuse may be happening the person people aren't coming together or whatever in the way they're supposed to and is that saying that divorce is seen as worse than like spousal abuse uh neglect uh 
lying hypocrisy like is that worse in a marriage than divorce or is divorce the like truly terrible sin that we can't can't do but we can work through whatever this is like that's what i I don't i don't get and i and here's the thing i think god cannot like something we do but give us allowance to do it because it's better than the other thing like i don't think god you know is particularly happy or enjoys divorce but i also don't think he likes spousal abuse i don't know how divorce is worse than this i I don't see it it takes a very special hermeneutic yeah yeah it it really does and i mean i i I like if you continue and rachel shares i think it's spot on is like everyone else from josh's own children to a woman afraid to have him in the home to his own wife are bearing the risks and costs of his behavior and they are being told it is godly and right to do it and it's like let's just continue to twist scripture to fit our our interpretation of it and say that you know god hates divorce but you have to be in this horrendous situation and you have to bear it and you have to deal with the cost and the risk of it because that's what you're supposed to do to be godly. It seems like whenever we talk about the biblical manhood womanhood spheres, right? The thing that comes up is always, well, we need our men to act like men. And the only way we can do that is if we put them in charge. Well, the problem is if we put them in charge and we get this, we need to evaluate what's wrong with our biblical manhood womanhood because this ain't it. Amen. If this is what it's giving us, then it's broken. And I'm not saying that it only happens here, but we need to understand that like there there's something broken about the system and it needs to get fixed. This woman should not have to take in this sexual abuser into her house because her husband said so. That's absolutely not biblical. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's one of those things that like time and time again, I mean, I know the church isn't necessarily any worse in protecting uh, evil people, but I see it happen just as much as like, uh, like secular people. I mean, I'll never forget. I was, I can't remember if it was my senior year or my first or my, the year before my junior year of college in, in law and justice classes, watching the Brock Turner trial kind of like, like that whole case kind of lay out. And the judge was like, you know, well, he's a good kid. He just raped this unconscious woman behind the dumpster three months and i just remember being like what because he had his future to think of yeah and it, and i just i see the same thing happening in in our churches you know of just like oh well he didn't mean it and it's like you can't like rachel said you can't tell me this was an accident there there were many steps taking place it's not that he's a victim of something going on which again we're all a victim of capital sin that exists in the world or whatever but like he put guardrails and then hopped them. And now everyone else in his community is carrying this forward and trying to minimize the damage to him. But in that regard, breaking down and damaging other people in its wake. And that is just not Christ-like. And this is happening right within the church. And it's, hap- it's just like, and, and, and it's a family that we have elevated on a pedestal as like the epitome of a godly Christian family. Yeah. I mean, we've, we idolize this family as, as a Christian family. 
so we kind of like going on to what you said, Mike, and then Matt, you said this in a group somewhere. Uh, oh, and I don't remember the, I don't remember the context of it, but I thought it was really good. It was like, we can't be comparing ourselves to think those outside of our, of our context, our culture. We need to be comparing it to ourselves. Like, and I think that that's like so spot on here is like, you know, Mike just identified. It's like, we might not be any worse than those outside of the church, but we're not any better. And so like, we need to be looking at ourselves and being like, why are we not better? Because we should be better. And we are obviously not. Well, on this uh, bundle of joy, I feel like we should probably wrap this up. Podcast listener, I'm extremely sorry. However, all three of us are in a book club and we are reading A Church Called Tove. So if you want to fix this shit, A Church Called Tove is a good place to start. It's so good. Such a great read. And especially as you learn more about this story and how the church has played into Josh's ability to continue down this road... A Church Called Tove is something that you should definitely be a part of, be reading, looking into it. It'll hopefully confront you and challenge you and all of those wonderful words uh, because it is. it can be a difficult read, but I think it's an important read for anyone in the church today. Anything else on that, guys? I feel like I need a shower. <laughs> Between Nazis and this, man, I need a shower. <laughs> this is a rough one. Yeah, I mean, I just feel so dirty between reading that tweet discussing this I'm going to get a fun coffee like this is just a downer of like you bring me on the podcast and it's like the most depressing (laughs) I thought we were talking about Lego (laughs) (laughs) okay let's let's uh let's have Brian back on at some point to talk about Lego We, we totally should thank you for listening to the barely saved podcast make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app you can find more episodes, links, and show notes at barelysavepodcast.com. Bye. Strawberry ice cream for life. No, oh, gross. Thank you for tuning in to Amateur Hour. <laughs> I believe I believe it's a strawberry ice cream hour because it's mediocre at best. I'm always about it. I'm always going to be an advocate. I'm try- I would love to one day be a Lego ambassador, so this will help give me some Lego cred. That's right. Once you get that YouTube channel going, we'll bring you back. Yes. I just got to move. I just I just need space. So once I move, it's happening. No pressure. This is where we say goodbye. So uh, adios, mofos. Bye.